Well, good evening. If I haven't uh, met you yet or if you missed the introduction, my name is Nama. I'm one of the assistant pastors here and a privilege of mine to be leading us through God's Word. So let me pray for us very quickly. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your Word be our rule, your Spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, again, welcome. Uh, if this is your first time coming back to an evening service, we've been <clears throat> hopping through a sermon series through the book of Judges, right? and it's not always the most encouraging or, or uh, hopeful uh, picture that is painted in these narratives, but there is still hope in it, even in the bleak pictures of these narratives. Uh, and so today we're, we're landing here on, on Judges 6. <clears throat> uh, and before we do, if you take a moment to think of some of the, the great companies that we see uh, around the world, or even some of the great celebrities, and we kind of consider the magnitude and, and, and how they got to where they are, a lot of these companies actually had some very humble beginnings. When you consider Apple and, and Microsoft and Amazon, three major tech giants nowadays, they were started out of a garage, seemingly. Nike was selling shoes out of the back of a truck to begin off. Google and Facebook were started by college students out of their dorm rooms, and, and people like Oprah, who came up from a broken home, who, who went through a, a very immense period of abuse. People like J.K. Rowling, who recalls being a single mother uh, who was in a low-income bracket and, and recalls times where she didn't eat so that her daughter could. A lot of people, a lot of companies that we see around us come from humble beginnings. And the person that we'll look at in Judges 6 is <clears throat> much like uh, this, that he came himself from humble beginnings. When we think of the judge of Gideon, off, what often comes to mind is, is Gideon and the 300, and this, this mighty battle that he was able to win. And when I think of 300, I think of the, the movie that came out, uh, kind of chronicling the the heroic efforts of the Spartans against the Persian army. And, and I'll let Dave Snow next week preach on, on the, the immensity of that feat. But today, we're going to look at Gideon's humble beginnings. That as we consider Gideon's story, as, as you consider what you remember about it, this entire chapter in Judges 6 will highlight that Gideon may not have been the person who we thought he was. That even as he's mentioned in the great Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 as, as being one with immense faith in God, which he was, there was often a lot of humility and maybe not so proud moments that Gideon showed as he accepted this call from God. So if you would, let me read through portions of Judges 6. In your bulletin, there are parts that are italicized and those that are not. I'm going to be focusing on the parts that are not italicized, uh, but we'll kind of briefly cover the other portions as well. And at the end of it, if as tradition is here, if you respond with thanks be to God. So let's read from Judges 6, starting in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? 
And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put on in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord reached out of the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands in Ophrah, which belongs to the Beazorites. And then we're going to skip down to verse 36. And Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. <clears throat> if there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on the, all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to him, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry in the fleece only and on all the ground that there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry in the fleece only, and all the ground there was dew. This is the word of the Lord. So then, as we consider this person of Gideon, as we consider his humble beginnings, we're going to couple that, couple his humble beginnings with the immense faithfulness of God. And so in order to do that, we'll, we'll look through three <clears throat> main points this evening, and that is the context of Gideon's call, the call itself and his response to it, and the signs of God's assurance for that call. The context of the call, Gideon's response to his call, and God's assurance for this call. And the first is the context. The broader context of where we are here in Judges 6 is that we are post-Exodus. The Israelites have been, have been led out of Egypt into the wilderness. They've been given the law of God. And now they're in this period of, of conquest, of trying to get into the promised land that was <clears throat> promised to them uh, from the days of Abraham. But as we've seen in the earlier chapters of Judges, the Israelites uh, kind of convey this repeated pattern of falling into sin and idolatry. And then 
being oppressed by one of these nations that they're trying to conquest, and then crying out to God to help them, to deliver them, and then God uh, answers them in the form of a judge, some, uh, a leader to help rule them uh, out of this conflict, of this oppression. And so this cycle repeats over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges. And so here in the, in the beginning <clears throat> verses of Judges 6, Israel is experiencing one of its most harsh oppressions since uh, the book of Judges is being recorded, and that's by the Midianites, as we've read. <clears throat> it's been lasting uh, seven years in total, and they've had their crops taken away, they've had their produce eaten, they've had their livestock taken away, all consumed. So much so to the point that they are likened to the, the works and deeds of locusts. And if we remember from uh, the ten plagues in Egypt, the locusts consuming all of the crop, the livestock, <clears throat> and locusts also being a sign of judgment through the prophet Joel. And thus, the, the Israelites were forced then out of their fear, out of uh, this constant oppression by the Midianites, who was taking everything that they owned, they are then forced to live in the mountains. To hide away in caves and dens. <clears throat> so that when the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and, and, and appears before him, Gideon responds in verse 13. He says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? But where was all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? <clears throat> but now the Lord has forsaken us. Strong words, and given us into the hand of Midian, excuse me. <clears throat> On a human level, uh, we can begin to em empathize and understand Gideon just a little bit, right? If you think about the scope and magnitude of what's being done to the Israelites by the Midianites, we can kind of understand where he's coming from, where this frustration is coming from. Seven years they went like this. Seven whole years. 2014. Seven years ago. Think about where you were in 2014. Right? What were you doing? Who were you with? What was your life back then? Life like back then. Now, imagine from that point on till today that you were constantly oppressed. Constantly pushed down. Constantly running into conflict. 2014, I was a, a greenhorn out of seminary, entering into my first year of full-time ministry. And as I was reflecting on this passage this week, if I had kind of entered into a ministry context where I was all of the time running into hurdles and challenges and, and drama and controversy and, and things that I had to mediate with, albeit that is the call of, of pastors and shepherds in the church, I don't know that I could say that I'd be standing here right now. But if you think about the magnitude of what Israelites and particularly Gideon is facing, you can understand the heartache that he is expressing to God in this moment. Maybe it doesn't even have to be seven years. What if we think about 20 months ago? What if we think about when COVID first hit? What, what were we like? What was our faith like? What were our general practices and our schedules and our budgets like? And how much has that changed because of this global pandemic? We've lost a lot. We've had to compromise on a lot. We've had to meet people in the middle a lot. And still along the way, we've had conflicts with people. We had people disagree with us. People disagree with 
how we are taking our stance on this. So we can understand this human condition of oppression, suffering, obstacles, trials, and when it's inundated like that, day after day, we understand and we see Gideon's frustration. <clears throat> and you can see Gideon's doubt. God, you've forsaken us. He goes as far as to say, God has forsaken us. And when we consider the context of, of Gideon's call, of this conversation that he is having with the angel of the Lord, with God himself in this moment, we have to know that even though there is suffering, the presence of suffering is not the absence of God. Even though the Israelites have been oppressed and suffering by the hand of the Midianites for seven years, that does not mean that God was not there. So that even for us in 2021, We've been through a lot. It's been a long season, but it does not mean that God was not here. The presence of suffering is not the absence of God. And one way that we see that is that in the closing verses of kind of wrapping, wrapping up and summarizing what's been going on, is that after the people of Israel, of Israel cry out to God, God usually sends them a judge. But this time first, he sends them a prophet. And the prophet Unfortunately, it doesn't have a lot of good news, but it really, the prophet is there to call, the, call out the Jews. He says, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. God sends this prophet. He affirms his presence with them. And he sends them a little bit of tough love to say, this is why all of this is happening. You have broken my covenant. You have broken these promises that we have made. Now, I'll pause here to say, I know, I'm towing this fine line between thinking, if we do poorly in life, if we fail, if we uh, fail to follow these quote-unquote rules of God, of Christianity, then God will curse us. But if we do well, if we, if we follow the rules, if we can be good Christians, so to speak, God will bless us. Now, as, as much as I can say, that's, that's not what I'm saying. It's very tempting to think of the book of Judges like that. But the very subtle difference is to say that, that we're proclaiming the truth that life outside a loving relationship with God only brings brokenness and despair. Life outside a loving relationship with God only brings brokenness and despair. And you can see why this paradigm of you fail, you'll be cursed. You succeed, you'll be blessed. is very different than life outside of this loving relationship. Because on the one hand, you have pursuit of the end result. I just want to, to be fully glorified. I just want to be in a place where I don't have to experience any of this anymore versus I want God himself. Right? I want the process. I want this relationship of being changed, of knowing who God is, of knowing who, who I am, and knowing where what I need to do to be in this loving relationship with God. And that's what this prophet, that's what the book of Judges is trying to do. It's not to highlight this Here's the book of Moses. Here's the law. Follow it and, and be cursed or blessed depending on what you do. But it's to say, 
you have disobeyed. You have lost this relationship with me, and you're only finding brokenness, despair, oppression, trials, and suffering. So in that, in this act of tough love, in this constant sending of judges, God is still present. The presence of suffering is not the absence of God. So that's the call. That's the, the, I'm sorry, that's the context in which Gideon has been calling. He's been living this life. Imagine like who he was as a man being formed and shaped by all of this heartache and despair. And now finally having this opportunity to confront God about it. And he's going to vent this frustration as is rightfully so. And so how, what is the call itself and how does Gideon respond to it? And before we get to the call... Uh, there's a very quick line in uh, verse 11 where it says, Gideon, the son of Joash, was found in the winepress threshing wheat. And it's very easy for us as, as modern-day Christians to kind of overlook that. But for those who have been, uh, those who were in an agricultural society, as, as would have been uh, Old Testament readers and listeners, they would have found that very peculiar, right? Because uh, a threshing floor for wheat would have been a, a vast open space where farmers would go and they would lay their wheat there and they would let the chaff be blown away by the, uh, by the wind and only be left with the crop, with the wheat itself, right? But it says that he wasn't uh, threshing wheat in the threshing floor, he was threshing wheat in a wine press. And when we think about a wine press, we think about this large uh, bucket, if you will, where you're just kind of stomping on, on grapes, trying to retain as much of, of the juice as possible, right? So he's, he's using this, this agricultural tool in a very wrong and, and weird way. And that, again, is to highlight Gideon's fear, his frustration, his uneasiness. He's lived seven years seeing his crops, seeing his livestock being taken away, seeing his very livelihood be jeopardized. And so he's found cowardly in this wine press in the mountains, threshing wheat. So this is where God finds him. In verse uh, 12, it says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. How unmerited and at best sarcastic that title is for Gideon. The mighty man of valor. Cowardly threshing wheat in a wine press. And so when we see uh, the call, and Gideon, uh, Gideon asks God, where is the God who brought us out of Egypt? The funny thing is that a lot of the elements of Gideon's call in these verses mirrors that of Moses. Right? Midian is mentioned. There's an initial sense of doubt. The very presence of God is with him. So there's a lot of very uh, keen literary tools that are happening to show that this call mirrors that of Moses. So that when Gideon asked, where is the God who led us out of Egypt? By mirroring the call of Moses, God is saying, he's right here. I called Moses in the very same way, and in the very way that I led uh, Israel out of Egypt, I'm going to help Israel be led out of Midianites. So that's the irony in his question. Where is the God who brought us out of Egypt? He's sitting right in front of you. And so for the call itself in verse uh, 14, it says, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Um, and Gideon's response is, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, 
I will strike down the Midianites as one man. So this initial call is essentially, he's, he's found Gideon where he is, and he said, go, I'm going to save you from the Midianites, so go and fight them. And you can understand this immense uh, mental and emotional hill that Gideon has to climb. He's like, me? How are you going to use me? Like, not only am I the, the least and the youngest in my family, but you, you pick the weakest clan. Like, God, how are you going to do this? So we see a ton of, of doubt, of fear. You picked the wrong guy. And then as he, as he continues uh, this call, um, God commands Gideon then also to tear down the altars of Baal and the Asherahs that were located in his father's house. So there are portions of verse 25 and 26 that we did not read. But they're there, and he calls him to do that. And, and what God is doing here is that in order for you to conquer the Midianites, in order for you to be free from this oppression, I need you to break down the idols uh, and these altars that have been hindering you uh, from this loving relationship with me. So God is going back to this point of, it's not just about how can we achieve this task? How can we be free from these people? But it really is how can we, we be made right in this relationship with God? That in order for the, the Israelites to be free from Midian, they have to tear down their idols. They have to repair this relationship that, they, that they've lost with God. So here is this immense, enormous responsibility that is now seemingly laid on the lap of Gideon. And again, we can empathize with him a bit. We can understand why he would display such doubt and fear. Seven years of, of oppression was built into his, his own formation, his own identity of who he was. He was threshing wheat in a wine press, doubting his, his very purpose, his own usefulness. Now, as, as readers, it's very tempting to read a narrative like Gideon and, and maybe even think, I think I could have done better. I think I could have responded at least a little bit more faithfully. I would have acted differently. But when we do that, I encourage us that we face this temptation that we underestimate the depth of sin and we over-inflate our unrighteousness. Right, so when we have this thought of like, man, if Gideon could have just held out a little longer, if he could have just seen like who God was and what he was doing, we have the benefit of that, of reading just a couple more chapters. But when we begin to feel that temptation, uh, we feel this temptation of underestimating the depth of our sin and over-inflating our own righteousness, well then, which would then only lead us more into this unloving relationship with God. It's always in the context of human weakness, of frailty, of doubt, that the Lord achieves his greatest victories. That in the midst of human uh, fear, of years of, of oppression and, and uh, despair, that God will bring about his greatest victories. Which is why, when we remember Gideon, we remember all the good stuff. We remember all the things that God led Israel out of. And that was done in this very weakness that Gideon is displaying here, that we've seemingly forgotten because of the immensity of God's faithfulness. God always uses human weakness to bring about his greatest victories. And we see that. Uh, the, the additional scriptures listed in your bulletin are that of, of both David and of Paul. 
biblical references of people who were not supposed to be in the seats that they were, but were used in mighty ways despite their human weakness for God's purposes. And God does this because only then can we depend more on Him. It eliminates this temptation to think that we had something to do with it. I, I, I attributed about 60% and then 40% of that was God, or, or whatever kind of ratio you like to break down. But when we are led out of our weakness and we see victory, that's all God. So I ask us, as we think about this relationship that we have with Him, or, or, or maybe we don't have with Him, how do we assess that? How do we assess like moving forward and doing certain things? Are there are certain tasks that we deem impossible. Man, I could never talk to that person. They're just a little too different for me. Maybe it's a little bit awkward. We, we just don't relate, and I can't see this relationship. Or God could never work in the corners of, uh, of this area of my life, whether that's uh, talking to my coworkers or uh, talking about the gospel or Jesus with, with my, my foremates or my hallmates. Like, there are certain areas where it's kind of, I, I feel comfortable keeping God at an, at an arm's distance. But what we have to understand is that in our weaknesses, in those moments that we think it's impossible, God brings about His greatest victories. And so when we see the character and response of Gideon, we aren't meant to read this narrative as a lens uh, through the angel of the Lord. It's to say, man, man, Gideon, just, just man up a little bit more and be stronger. But it's supposed to be a mirror for us of our own fallen condition, of our own sin, of the own doubts and fears that we have. How we've been ruled, how we've been formed, how we've been identified by our own failures in the past. And it's okay to read it through that way because we end with the assurance of God. We end with the very signs that God gives Himself. Now, the first sign that God gives was outlined in verses 19 <coughs> to 24. Where Gideon then receives his call, and he's like, okay, well, if you're going to ask me to do this, I just need you to do me one thing. Like, just stay until I come back. And so what Gideon does is he comes back and he brings this extravagant meal as a sign of hospitality to the angel of the Lord. Still not knowing that it's God himself at that point. And when this meal is presented before God, and instead of sharing in this meal together, uh, the angel causes it to be burned up. And he does that to confirm that this was not just a meal to be shared, this was an offering being made to the covenant God of Yahweh. And so in that moment, Gideon sees God's identity. He sees who is the one who is actually giving him this call. So through this immense sign, God confirms who he is, that it's this covenant-keeping, steadfast love displaying God himself. And so he, he grows a little bit stronger in his resolve. And almost most, most famously is the sign of the fleece that we see at the end of the chapter. Right? So what's, what's going on here? Well, prior to this, as he was commanded, Gideon tore down the altars of Baal. He tore down the Asherahs of his father's house. <clears throat> and then he's kind of gathering all the tribes of Israel to then face the Israelites. He's, he's empowered with, he's clothed with, the power of the Holy Spirit, as, it, as, it, as the text says. 
and they're kind of on the, the front lines of the battlefield. Like if you can picture any other epic or movie that you've seen of, of the big battle, the ending battle about to happen. <clears throat> and at this juncture is when Gideon asks for the son. Now on one hand, it could seem like yet another display of his unbelief, of his doubt. But Gideon is not asking God to like, reveal what he's about to do, but he's, he's asking God to confirm what he's already promised. And so he asked him, he has this threshing floor, ironically slow, and he has this fleece, and the fleece is on the ground, and he's asking God, God, if, if you were to confirm uh, our victory tomorrow, <clears throat> would you then, by morning, keep the fleece wet and the ground dry? Right? So it's, it's kind of hard to do that when you have temperatures going overnight, and, and the dew is just going to go all over the place and not just be located in one area. But God says, okay, and he does it. The fleece the next morning is wet, and the ground around it is dry. And then Gideon has a gall. That's what, he said, God, just one more. Can I just have one more miracle? One more sign. And he says, this time, would you let the fleece be dry and the ground around it be wet? So what's going on in, in these signs? What's supposed to be signified and symbolized is that the threshing floor, um, as, as Hebrew and Jewish readers and listeners would have understood it, is a common metaphor for land, right? When you think, when you think about uh, three times in that paragraph, it says, on the ground, all around it. So it's referencing land, uh, this, the land that Israel was at. And the fleece was signifying the Midianites because they often came in camels and they would pillage them and take all their crops. And the ground all around it was supposed to be Israel. And so what is God doing here? He's saying at one point, when the fleece is wet and the ground all around it is dry, God is confirming the current situation of what has been, the reality, right? So Midian has been blessed with all of the crops and their livestock, and Israel has been uh, suffering. And so right before battle, Gideon says one more time, would you reverse that? Would you have the fleece be dry? Would you have the ground all around it be what he's asking the blessing of God to be back upon the Israelites? He's asking God to confirm that he is going to restore his people and confirm his presence with them again. And we know that God will do this, uh, and I'll close with this, is that in the very opening words of God to Gideon, uh, verse 12, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Those are all the words that, that Gideon needs. That is, when we think about this title of Almighty Man of Valor, we, we first saw it as a sarcastic kind of tone of like, maybe he's addressing Gideon in this way. But in fact, what God is doing is he's describing himself. Almighty Man of Valor. Because later on in verse 14, he says, Go in this might of yours. Right? Because we knew that at that point, Gideon had no might. But the might that he had was this promise that the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. And sometimes, all the time if I can, God's presence is all that we need. If we think about these last 20 months, if you think about this past week and the moments of distraction, the moments of despair, maybe this chronic ongoing despair that you've had. I don't know why God called you here, but hear these words. The Lord is with you. God is with you. 
the Lord of the covenant-keeping, steadfast love, as we've read all throughout Psalm 103, this very God is with you. And He blesses you. So that we know that when we encounter life, when we encounter suffering, the presence of that is not His absence. Because the Lord is with you. He confirms that. And when we consider doing the impossible, when we consider uh, the, the corners of our life, those nooks where we feel like, man, light cannot just shed and shine on there. I don't know if God has the power to change that. The Lord is with you. The covenant God of Israel, of everlasting faithfulness, is with us because He has given us a sign. He has given us a miracle, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. That as we see Him coming, as we see Him interacting with us, having meals with us, dining with sinners, dining with people that we thought He had no business interacting with, and then He would come to live this perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, for the very doubts and the fears that even we feel today. He pinned those to the cross, and then He showed us the power that even death has no power over that we see an empty tomb, that we see the resurrection. And so now, in 2021, even now, we can know for certain that the Lord is with us. Jesus has given us this very power. Jesus has paved the way for us. I know it can be very discouraging. Maybe sometimes even reading through the book of Judges feels like reading through the, the anthology of our own lives. We're in constant patterns of sin, I don't know how to get out of this. Is God really there? Yes. How do I know that? Jesus Christ. God is with you. So that as a church, as individuals, that is our hope and prayer. That if, that if you don't know him, that, that you would experience this loving relationship with him. That you would come to terms over the reality that a life outside of that loving relationship is brokenness and despair. But a life inside of that is his blessing, his, his love, is is knowing our Creator, our Savior, and our Father. Amen. Let's pray.